Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is another show in our chronological Disneyland saga. And in order to tell the story of time and Disneyland, we need to bring in our own father time, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I turned 58 a week ago. That's right. I forgot to wish you happy birthday. Happy birthday. Well, 58, they're not happy. They're just sort of like, are we having cake? No, you can't have cake. You're diabetic. All right. So <laughs> stare at it from a distance. That's what I do. Jim, before we get started talking about Disneyland, I'd like to talk a little bit about two universal news items that popped up today as we were getting ready to record. The first one is a notice that Universal filed to build a hotel on the property that used to be Wet and Wild, the Wet and Wild theme park. What do you know about that? Well, I can remember it was what a year, year and a half ago when, when Universal was really fighting that sky coaster that was supposed to be built over on that section of I Drive, and largely because it was supposed to visually intrude on this sixteen-acre piece of land that Wet and Wild's built on. Right, it was going to be the what tallest roller coaster in either North America or the world or the galaxy, something like that. And I think it's still coming, if I remember correctly. But the thinking was that the reason that Universal was fighting this so hard was that's where park number three was going to be built. But then, of course, that land that Universal never expected to come back on the market, the Lockheed property that it sold off 10, 15 years ago, suddenly mm -hmm. that was on the market again. And so Universal snagged that. And then a lot of their future plans changed. So according to the permits that have been applied at full build-out, this is 4,000 hotel rooms. On how many acres? 16. I'm thinking this is going to go vertical very, very fast. <laughs> I would think as well. You know, otherwise you go back to your hotel room at night and they put you on a meat hook. <laughs> 4,000 hotel rooms is larger than Pop Century, right? Yeah. This is universal and they are very, very ambitious. I think earlier we've discussed the challenges that Universal faces with these sorts of projects, building off property, so to speak, that they're going to have to transport people by buses. But then right. again, the folks who stay at Cabana Bay, they're on buses. They come over to the transportation hub. And likewise, there were people who stayed at Universal who bought access to Wet n' Wild who would then bust over, be it from the you know, the Hard Rock or Portofino or that sort of thing. So do you think there are insurance differences between busing someone entirely on universal property versus busing them on public roadways? Oh, God, yes. I mean, strictly from a liability point of view. In fact, that's the meeting I'd love to be in. I'd love to hear what the lawyers at NBC Universal or further up at Comcast <laughs> had to say about this. Do you think, Jim, they're saying to themselves, gondola system, we could have it, we could have it done by the end of the year? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? There's actually president, Len. Remember what happened with the KUKA arms. Right. Disney supposedly had a lock on the system, and then supposedly they had a 10-year exclusive on the KUKA arms, didn't they? Disney had it or Universal had it? Disney supposedly bought a couple of them and was getting ready to really make a big buy. In fact, that was supposed to be what powered the Incredibles training facility attraction that they wanted to build. Right, right. The other thing I want to talk about, Jim, is this article that was posted to Newsday today. Uh, again, it's Universal related. It's an interview with uh, Jason Sorrell, former Disney Imagineer, who's now working on attractions for Universal in Orlando, including the new Jimmy Fallon ride. Mm -hmm. And the thing that it talks about, the premise of the article, is how theme parks are trying to get people away 
from having to stand in lines. Jimmy Fallon is an example of this in that it's going to be a queueless, i.e. lineless attraction. And the way it's going to work, if I understand it correctly, is that it's going to be almost exactly like FastPass. You get a reservation to enter the ride, and once you show up, you've got a very short wait until you get into the ride. There's not going to be a standby line, so it'll be a FastPass-only attraction, kind of like the Anna and Elsa meet-and-greet was at Disney California Adventure, which I believe was FastPass-only as well. We all know that the FastPass time windows are typically an hour, you know, give or take a few minutes on either side. This one seems to be a much tighter time frame, 15 minutes. I think there's a duality here. I think that there's both a queueless as in the reservation system idea, mm-hmm. but there's also queueless as in there is no physical queue inside of this attraction. As I think of it, this really is kind of a riff on what they did for Dumbo at Storybook Circus, where you're handed that beeper thing, and then your child can run crazy in the play area until it's time to finally board Dumbo. Ah, good analogy. Yeah, yeah. In the case of the Jimmy Fallon uh, Race Across New York attraction, I mean, you enter what's supposed to be a a faux version of 30 Rock, the Rockefeller Center where NBC is headquartered, and Mm -hmm. you're then downstairs in sort of a Tonight Show museum where they have wonderful exhibits that go all the way back to Steve Allen and take you right up to when Jimmy is running the Tonight Show. In that space, I mean, you you are are not locked into a, a set of rails. You're free to roam. And I'd love to talk to Jason about that. I think there are some interesting implications for it in terms of figuring out what the guests do in between the times at which they've got oh, scheduled no doubt. things. No doubt. We're obviously simulating a touring plan that involves the Jimmy Fallon type of queueless system. We could also simulate what happens if there were two, five, or ten of these kinds of attractions in a theme park as well. So I'd love to hear his input on how he's figuring out the same sort of thing. Like how he's how he's simulating it for 40,000 people in a park or 30,000 people in a park. As we, mm-hmm. can, uh, we can definitely do that for the software, but, uh, but I'd like to know what they're, what they're doing. There we go. All right, on to our topic of the day, which is chronological Disneyland. The last time we had done this, which was just a couple of weeks ago, we were continuing the discussion of the second gate at Disneyland in the Michael Eisner era. We're talking about Westcott and what it was. And there were a couple of competing plans I think we left off with. All right, Jim? There was Anaheim and Long Beach? Yeah. In fact, kind of timely that we're, we're back to talk about the Queen Mary this week because March 13th of this month, uh, Long Beach Press Telegram reports that the Queen Mary is now in dire need of major repairs. How major? The estimate is $289 million. Wow. To make things worse, there's a ticking clock. The engineers who did the report said, if repairs do not get underway in a timely manner, and they're talking about within five years, the Queen Mary is likely to experience catastrophic structural collapses. Entire chunks of the hull coming loose and falling off into Long Beach Harbor. 30 years ago, Disney had its A-team ready to swoop in and save the Queen. And who was going to head up this effort but Kim Murphy? Now, Kim actually got his start at SeaWorld in San Diego back in 1965. He was straight out of college. He started at the absolute bottom at that theme park. And when I say bottom, that's very appropriate because he's sort of the aquatic equivalent of the guy at the circus who sweeps up after the elements. Only in this case, it would have been elephant seals. That's great. So he spends 10 years working for SeaWorld. Kim strikes out on his own in 1977, sets up a consulting company, which is how he ends up working on the deep 
which for those who worked on the production side of this movie, the, the memorable part of this film was that it was the first movie to shoot on location off the shore of Bermuda. And they actually built an entire film set, The Wreck of the Goliath, and they placed it inside of this million-gallon tank that was designed by Kim Murphy. Then it was placed out in the, the actual ocean, so it made it easy, well, easier to shoot underwater scenes with Robert Shaw and, and Nick Nolte. And one of the reasons they made this million-gallon tank is so that Columbia Pictures lawyers wouldn't constantly be having heart attacks because of you know the talent being out in the actual really for real ocean and getting the bends or worse, getting eaten by some great white who was <laughs> still mad at Peter Benchley for writing Jaws. Right. Maybe that's where he got the, uh, the idea for, what was it, uh, Jaws 4 or 5 or 6? There we go. The revenge thing? Uh, anyway, so this highly themed underwater setting was kind of a fulfillment of, of a lifelong dream that Kim had. And in an interview that he did with the Orlando Sentinel out ahead of the opening of Living Seas, Kim recalled that as, as far back as 1975, I was thinking if we could only put people into the ocean, get, give them the feeling it was actually like to be down in the depths looking out at it, that would be huge. I, I'd start thinking about how we could actually recreate that experience in a theme park setting where thousands of people could get to do this every day. By 1978, he gets hired by Disney Imagineering. He's brought on board at WED just as the company has finished his final design phase and is now moving into the initial construction of Epcot, and Murphy's assignment, he's the project manager for the land, the pavilion that Crafts Food is, is sponsoring. But this whole time, Kim's keeping his eye on the prize, which is Epcot's The Seas Pavilion, which has been uh. struggling for years to find a sponsor. Kim knew that between all of the years he'd spent behind the scenes servicing SeaWorld's aquariums and then, you know, his involvement with that underwater set for the deep that he consulted on for Columbia Pictures, he was the guy for this project. All he needed was the chance. And then when United Technologies finally agreed to come on board as a sponsor of the Living Seas, with the understanding that Disney would then ditch the original pre-show that the Imagineers had originally written for this future world pavilion. Anyway, once United Technologies comes on board, they're like, look, we're here to hype the stuff we sell, we make and sell to the people who visit Walt Disney World. We don't give a rat's ass about Greek gods or giant squid. So lose Poseidon. <laughs> and because Disney needed the $90 million that... United Technologies is willing to put up for construction. Uh, that's why the, the audio animatronic Greek god got axed. And just to provide a little perspective here, when you consider that by 1978, 79, when Kim is angling to go after the Seas Pavilion to be put in charge of that project, they had spent up until that point $100 million from the moment that they turned the key at SeaWorld Orlando in December of 73 to the new attractions have been put in. But that's five, six, seven years of growth, $100 million, $90 million for one single building. Wow. At that time, it was the world's largest aquarium. It was going to be 27 feet deep. It was going to hold 5.7 million gallons of man-made seawater and be home to 4,000 fish and marine mammals. And I mean, obviously, enormous undertaking. But the thing is, United Technology signs on as the sponsor of uh, Living Seas in July 
of 82. I mean, literally 60 days out from Epcot's soft opening. But Murphy doesn't flinch. He just motors on, makes sure the land pavilion is ready for opening day. And as soon as craft executives sign off on this six-acre structure, so much of the building is hidden below the surface of the earth or, or back of house at Epcot. And this all came about because Kim Murphy and his team were so skilled at hiding those buildings. Back to the Living Seas, a ground officially breaks on this new Future World Pavilion, October 1st, 1983. It's, it's part of the one-year anniversary of the opening of Epcot Center. It then takes 22 months to construct this building. Just the tank portion, Len, is 900 tons of reinforcing steel, which would, once that was in place, they pour 1,200 cubic tons of concrete. And then you had to slide 61 acrylic panels. And, and these panels are 8 feet tall and 24 foot wide. How thick are they? They're, they're huge, right? Depending on where they are, I, I guess the topmost portion is the narrowest. It can be as narrow as 4 inches, but toward the base, they're 8. Let's not forget that before you can put the 150 species that they spent the better part of two years collecting into this 203-foot diameter tank, you got to first make sure the filtration system works. And, and that was right. months and months of tests because there's 6.25 million gallons of water in that building, both freshwater and seawater. All of that water has to go through the re- recycling filtration system in two hours and 40 minutes. That's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's a lot of pumping. But Murphy made it happen. He persuades people like Dr. Robert Ballard from the Woods Hole Oceanographic mm. Institute. They find the Titanic in September of 1985. The Living Seas Pavilion is scheduled to open in January of 1986. So what does Kim do? He gets on the phone. He calls Robert. And as part of the CBS television special that's used to to launch the grand opening of the Living Seas, here's John Ritter doing a live uplink with Robert Ballard, who is unveiling footage that has never been seen of the Titanic. And it's part of this Disney theme park opening special. On the heels of the Living Sea's successful launch, Murphy was first made director of show quality assurance for all of Walt Disney World and all of Disneyland. But Mm -hmm. given his bona fides when it came to animal care and environmental issues, well, this is why Murphy was then made vice president of environmental policy for the the entire Walt Disney Company in the early 1990s. There was an aspect of crisis management with this promotion. At that moment in time, Disney needed somebody with impeccable credentials in the wake of what had just happened on Discovery Island back in September of 89. While they were in the process of removing, or excuse me, removing, relocating 150 nuisance animals, these were turkey buzzards that regularly attacked a lot of the other animals that were on display at Discovery Island, eating their food, that sort of thing. Anyway, 19 of these birds had wound up being killed. Among the problem birds, there were some real problem birds. And so what Disney would do when they were relocating them was would put them in a steel garden shed and toss the animal in Florida, in Florida, and then just kind of walk away for a couple of days. And that problem would help it, you know, solve itself. In the way that uh, being in the cooler in The Great Escape helped uh, Robert Redford. Uh... I don't <laughs> okay. think they gave the, the birds a tennis ball, though. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, moving on here. So Disney needed somebody to be the face of its new extremely animal-friendly pro-environmental effort, and Kim got tapped for this gig, and it, he's got to spend the bulk of his time back in Southern California battling with one of the most pro-environment, anti-development organizations on the planet, and that's the California Coastal Commission. Oh, yeah, they're legendary for, for not allowing things. And remember, you know, the, one of the things we keep circling back on whenever we talk about the Queen Mary as part of this series is that the city council had already signed off on the idea that whoever took over this property could, in fact, fill in a certain portion of the harbor to make it that much more advantageous to build an attraction there. And mm-hmm. But again, the California Coastal Commission had to sign off on this idea. And I think it's time we finally talk about this parkland. And this I'm holding in my hands here. This is the preliminary master plan for Port Disney. Uh, it was prepared by the Ooh. Walt Disney Company in July of 1990. How about today we'll just talk about the theme park, Disney Seas. And particularly why Kim Murphy so wanted to build this park. I'm reading now straight from the plan here. The centerpiece of the proposed master plan is a new ocean-oriented theme park concept tentatively called Disney Seas, which combines a wide variety of Disney-style rides, shows, and attractions with activities directed toward developing a better understanding of the sea. Disney's Imagineers have focused their efforts on exploring the myths, romance, challenges, and the mysteries of the ocean, the world's last great frontier. Both educational and fun, Disney Seas will break down the barriers between our guests and the sea. While the theme park is currently in the early stages of development, some concepts are under consideration or briefly discussed below. Okay, so we start with the centerpiece of the park, Oceana. This is going to be the focal center in a very epcot sort of way, Len. I mean, you come through the main entrance plaza, and there in front of you is this series of futuristic bubbles. In the center is a giant bubble. We're talking about something the size of Spaceship Earth. As you enter this, you are taking on a fantastic evolutionary journey through the world seas. Guests will walk through a state-of-the-art, two-story-tall aquarium. The curious can then journey to the 21st century, where they can visit a working future research center, where scientists from the world's leading institutions would then come together to conduct oceanic studies. Gee, I wonder if Bob Ballard would have been involved at that. <laughs> uh, in, in much the same way that, that researchers can now be seen working at the Living Seas and the Lands Pavilion at Epcot Center. Adults and children alike will learn about the ocean, its diverse marine life, in a hands-on exploratorium. And again, remember, Michael Eisner's fear was always that Epcot is too educational. We need to fold in entertainment. So toward the back of the park, you see a volcano shape rising up. And this is Mysterious Island, where guests can find the lost city of Atlantis in a modern version of a Disneyland e-ticket attraction. Children can also find clues to buried treasure on Pirate Island, where the more intrepid might dare to board Nemo's lava cruiser and careen suspended through dangerous caverns. Some of this other stuff just sounds like fun. I mean, for example, there's an aqua labyrinth, which is a challenging maze where the walls are made only of water, which to me sounds like a delightful version of the corn maze. (laughs) When you quit, it's like, screw it, I'm walking through the water. Anyway, that serves as the entrance of Hero Harbor, where the myths and legends of the sea would come 
come to life. Here, guests would find rides themed to the adventures of Sinbad, Ulysses, and other storied adventures of the sea. Instead of show buildings, there are show boats. Supposedly, you would have an actual boat shape on the surface, but below the ground, there would have been a soundstage-shaped building that could be as large as the ride needed to be. At the edge of the bay facing downtown, a boardwalk would recreate the nostalgia of the Long Beach ocean front of its heyday. Nearby, at Fleets of Fantasy, a harbor full of fabled and fancy ships, including outsized Chinese junks and Egyptian galleys, would uh, disguise dining and entertainment experiences. And then, finally, shoppers and diners would be intrigued at the Disney Sea's themed environments. It'd be a Grecian village, an Asian water market, a Caribbean lagoon. And here, guests might be seen surfing, snorkeling, or wading through tropical reefs, teeming with fish. So, you know, we get a, a chunk of Typhoon Lagoon. Some will be able to experience the ultimate water adventure, being lowered in a steel cage into a tank full of sharks. Uh, in the end, it didn't matter how enthusiastic Long Beach was. If the Coastal Commission didn't allow them to build, the project was dead. All right, so we'll pick up there on the next uh, Chronological Disneyland. Sure. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and tell your local zoning board all about your review for our show. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.